Uh, I'm going to read for us for our passage today most of the chapter of 2 Peter, chapter 3, first 15 verses, first part of 15th verse, and um, try to follow along, try to pay attention. It's dense, it's hard, but there are uh, at least two remarkable, remarkable claims here that we're going to talk about today. Uh, I'll set this up a little bit before I read it. What I want to talk about today is waiting. What does it mean that we're a people that are waiting? This chapter helps us. So here we go. Second Peter 3, 1 through the first part of 15. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you. In them, I am trying to arouse your sincere intention by reminding you that you should remember the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken through your apostles. First of all, you must understand this, that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and indulging their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since our ancestors died, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. They deliberately ignore this fact, that by the word of God, heavens existed long ago, and an earth was formed out of water and by means of water, through which the world of that time was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been reserved for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the godless. But do not ignore this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some think of slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will be dissolved with fire and the earth and everything that is done on it will be disclosed. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, what sort of persons ought you to be in leading lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, of God, because of which the heavens will be set ablaze and dissolved, and the elements will melt with fire. But in accordance with his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness is at home. Therefore, beloved, while you are waiting for these things, strive to be found by him at peace without spot or blemish and regard the patience of the Lord as our salvation. Pray with me for the sermon today. Almighty Father, I ask that you would be with me and bless me especially today in preaching. I'm feeling strange speaking into a camera. I'm feeling distant. I want to be there in the sanctuary, and yet I don't want to focus or think about that or worry about that, but take this blessing, this chance, this opportunity to preach from you. So please fill me. Please help me. Please be with my spirit. Please be with all of us that are listening we're distracted people, and we need you to help us listen and receive. 
In Jesus' name, amen. So we're taking a break. Well, not a break. We're shifting gears, really, from what we've been doing. We've been talking all Advent about the substance of our hope. And I've been doing this cheesy thing that I started last year where I try to find all the things that start with the letter R that we hope for. So we've done restoration, and we've done rest, and we've done resurrection. And last year we did rule and relationship and renewal. And it's all about kind of what? Looking forward, looking forward in hope and having our imaginations enlarged, our hearts enlarged, so we can sing full-throatedly worship to God. That's Advent. But for the last Sunday today, we're not going to look at another R, another part of our hope. Instead, I want us to think about this this question that's vexed me, that I, I really have to wrestle with. And that is, what does it mean that we're waiting? Uh, Advent has been called a season of watching and waiting. But what does that what does that really mean? I mean, when I hear waiting, I think of things like being on the phone with some sort of automated robot for 45 minutes to an hour to find no answer to my consumer customer service problem. That's 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 waiting in my life. I think of being at a doctor's office. And these things don't seem particularly Christian or glamorous or interesting. And so I just, I need to know, what does it mean that I'm supposed to wait on the Lord and that I should focus on that this season? And here's the thing, as I was digging into this this week, I came to appreciate that waiting is really important, essential. It's, it's kind of weird how important and essential it is. I mean, so for example, Joseph of Arimathea, who takes Jesus' body and buries it, he's called, it says of him that he is waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God. And then Paul talks about the Thessalonians converting to the Lord. He says they turned from idols to serve a true and living God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. And it's just kind of striking because I would never think of introducing any of you in that way. Rich is one who waits for the Lord. Henry is, here's Henry, he waits for the Lord. It's striking that this is so central that it can somehow be the way that you describe the essence of a Christian person. So, I think we really have to dig into this. And here's where we're going to start. I put on your handout five parables. Yes, I am going to summarize for you. We're going to walk through five parables. Now, if you're anything like uh, one of my close friends who may or may not live with me, who may or may not wear a ring indicating a special relationship with me. I'm trying to keep things anonymous. If you're anything like that person in my life, you're already groaning on the inside. When I asked Quincy how a sermon was, she divides it into two categories. There's the ones that she loves and she's interested in and follows, and those are the ones that are chock full and driven by stories. And then there's the ones she has a hard time following and they're boring because they're teaching. (laughs) Okay, we're going to go through a lot of scripture now, but we have to. 
This is important. I'm going to give you a question to focus on. And I'm going to justify myself in this way, too. Jesus, who it is revealing, did most of his teaching through stories. He told parables all the time, and that's like his primary way to teach. I think Quincy is actually on to something. Uh, Jesus actually had to teach some things with, without parables, too. All right? So I'm, but, but we are doing stories. Here's parables. All right. Here's the question to focus on. As we walk through all of these, all of which are about waiting, what do we learn about waiting from these parables? First parable, parable of the talents. A master gives three slaves some money. Five talents, two talents, one talent, and he leaves on a journey. The person with five talents goes out and makes another five. Person with two goes out and makes another two. Person with one is scared of the master, buries his, and makes nothing. It says, and I found this convicting, after a long time, the master returns, comes back. To the servants who made five and two talents, the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. But to the one who buried his talent because he was scared of the harsh master, master takes the talent, gives it to the one with ten, and has him cast out into the outer darkness. That's a parable about waiting and how we are to wait. Second parable, the watchful slaves. A master leaves for a wedding banquet. The waiting slaves are dressed for action, have lit lamps. They're to be alert and to open the door as soon as he comes back. If they do this, they will be blessed. And this is striking the master will actually serve them. They're to be ready because the Son of Man comes at an unexpected hour. Then Jesus says, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he wouldn't have let his house be broken into. That says something important about waiting. Third parable the faithful slave, the blessed slave who it seems becomes the faithful and prudent manager for the master, he's, he's at work when the master returns. The other slave, he's implicitly a, a wicked slave because the master's delayed, beats the other slaves, eats, drinks, gets drunk, when the master comes unexpectedly and he finds that slave, he's going to have that slave cut into pieces. Jesus says, from everyone to whom much is given, much will be required. And from the one to whom much has been entrusted, even more will be demanded. It tells us something about waiting. Fourth parable. This isn't so much a parable as a saying. No one knows 
the day or hour, not even Jesus himself on earth. As a result, because no one knows, everyone needs to keep alert, and later it says keep awake. The slaves with their work and the doorkeeper at his watch must not fall asleep because he will come suddenly at any time. When Matthew tells this, he tells has Jesus talking about the days of Noah when people were eating, drinking, marrying before the flood swept them away. And Jesus says, there will be two workers in a field, one will be taken. There will be two workers, women grinding grain, and one will be taken. In Luke's version, Jesus says, be on your guard at all times, be alert and pray. He says, be on your guard so your hearts are not weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of this life and the day does not catch you unexpectedly like a trap. Pray that you may have the strength to escape all the things that will take place and to stand before the Son of Man. My last parable about waiting. Then we're going to put all these together. The ten bridesmaids. End of Matthew's gospel, 10 bridesmaids have lamps. They go out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them are wise and brought oil. Five of them are foolish and have no oil for their lamps. The bridegroom is delayed, so they all fall asleep. When he finally arrives suddenly and unexpectedly, the foolish, well, their lamps don't work, so they have to leave and they have to go buy oil while the wise ones go in with him to the wedding banquet. When the foolish get back, the bridegroom says he doesn't know them. Jesus says, keep awake, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. All right. It's a lot. It's a lot of parables. It's a lot of teaching. But I think it's remarkable. Two things. First, that there is this much emphasis in Jesus' teaching about waiting for the master to come back. That's what we're doing in Advent. We're waiting for the master to come back. The second remarkable thing is how a clear and really, really convicting picture comes out if you put these parables together. I want to say three things. First thing, the day, the return of the master, the return of Jesus comes unexpectedly. No one knows when, not even the son comes unexpectedly. Second thing I'm going to say is here's the human tendency we learn about. Our natural default autopilot sinful tendency. In the face of this, we don't know when. There's temporal uncertainty. It could be a thousand years from now. It could be tomorrow. In the face of that, here's what we do. We think, assume, and act as if things are going to go on forever. The return isn't going to happen. And in light of that, we, we, we tend to be unprepared, slothful. We just go on eating and drinking merrily. We can even tend to cruelty, oppression, and moral dissipation. That's the human tendency. Here is what Jesus says he wants from the faithful servants. In contrast to that, we should assume that the end is coming imminently, that it can come at any time. It's not indefinitely out there so that we shouldn't think about it. It could well be today. 
And so because of that, we have to let that perspective motivate us in how we live. We don't live on autopilot status quo, sort of going through our day, just doing and doing and doing and never thinking about the end, never thinking about the fact that we ourselves may die soon. That is what the Bible calls sleeping. We're to be awake. We're to be alert. We're to be vigilant. We don't assume that life will go on forever. We don't take tomorrow for granted. We're alert. In Romans 13, verse 11, Paul says, you know what time it is, how it is now the moment for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first became believers. Being asleep is forgetting that we have a limited amount of time on this earth. We have to cherish every second. We don't know when it will end because Jesus returns or because we die. We cherish every single moment and live it intentionally and do things that matter and are meaningful and are for the kingdom. That's the perspective that is awake, alert. Not to think that way is to be asleep. We're one day closer to judgment today than we were yesterday. We're one day closer to our own death today than we were yesterday. And that has to determine everything. I was listening to a podcast this week called How God Works. It's hosted by a Northeastern University psychology professor named David DeSteno. So he's right across the Charles River. And the episode starts like this, and then a quote from it. He says, so this morning I got up, had my cup of coffee, headed to the office for meetings with students, did a press thing for my book, prepped for classes, and recorded this podcast. Then, later than I wanted, I headed home for dinner, watched a favorite show with my family, and then headed to bed, also later than I wanted. Or wait, was that yesterday? Or maybe that was last Wednesday. The fact is, all the days kind of blend together. A constant, endless, incessant cycle of trying to get ahead in life. To be honest, I take it for granted that this cycle will more or less repeat. But what if tomorrow I didn't wake up? That kind of thinking and that kind of correction is at the heart of any sermon that examines what the Bible tells us about waiting. We have to be shaped by our awakeness, our alertness, the fact that time will not go on for us individually or for the world forever. And it's not really that hard to change our behavior if that perspective is the one that we have. It's natural for our behavior to change if we have that perspective. The same podcast, fascinating, interviewed a professor from Stanford from something called the Center on Longevity. Her name is Lauren Karstensen, and she talked about two experiments that she and her colleagues have done that show remarkably how people's preferences and actions and behaviors flow from how much time they think they have left on earth. 
She says, we are fundamentally sort of guided in what we choose and how we act by our time horizon. Our time horizon. How much time we think we have left. So what they found when they do these studies is that older people, people above the age of 60, find joy in meaningful relationship and service to others, generally speaking. While younger people, generally speaking, focus on new opportunities, new skills, and status. But what they found is they thought that was because older people were wiser, had learned what's important, or maybe they had more time because they were retired, or maybe because they were retired, they didn't have to worry about status in a career, but the experiments have suggested that's not really what's going on at all. Instead, it's their perspective from their different understanding of a time horizon. Carstensen says, people come to be more selective and careful about the things they're investing in when time is in some sense running out. So one experiment she mentioned, totally fascinating. What they found early on in the COVID pandemic, early on, younger people started to change their preferences. They started to act more like older people. They started to want to spend a lot more time with their friends and loved ones as compared to their careers and their work. And here's what's interesting. When the vaccines first came out, they shifted back to their previous perspective. As soon as they thought, wait, I'm safe, I'm not going to die, they started to go back to worrying about skills, opportunity, employment, and status. Second experiment she mentioned, this is fascinating. They got a group of younger people and older people and they asked them the following question. You have 30 minutes to spend, you have some free time, 30 minutes, you can spend it with one of three people. You could spend it with a close family member or close friend. You could spend it with an author of a book you've recently read or you could spend it with a recent acquaintance with whom you seem to have much in common. Younger people's responses were randomly distributed. They chose all three of those things with no real rhyme or reason or pattern. While older people overwhelmingly chose to spend the time with a close friend or close family member. But when the researchers told the older people, imagine you just got a phone call from your physician who has found a new medical advance that will extend your life at least 20 years longer than you currently can expect to live, and you'll be in relatively good health, and they ask the same question, if that were the case, who would you wanna spend the 30 minutes with? Their responses were randomly distributed like the younger people. Now, the point here is simple and profound. Our perspective on time on whether time's gonna go on indefinitely or whether it's not, makes an enormous difference for what we choose and how we live. The researcher Carsonson sums it up this way. Plan like you're going to live forever and live like you're going to die tomorrow. At least that last part is, I think, based on our parables, profoundly Christian. As you know, I talk about all the time, my, my own dad died when I was 16, suddenly on a Sunday afternoon. And when I gave the eulogy at his funeral a few days later and stood in front of this packed church, 
it profoundly affected me, not just that day, but for years to come, thinking about what it means to summarize someone's life and significance. I did change some of the ways that I spent my time. When you stare at the fact that your life is not going to go on forever, it can and should and does motivate you to live in more meaningful ways. And for us, for Christians, to live in ways that are focused on furthering the kingdom of God. I mentioned Fleming Rutledge, whose book on Advent I'm enjoying. She writes this, when the day of the Lord comes, the whole world will discover that the only thing that matters is the consummation of God's purpose. And the only things that are lasting are the things done in accordance with his will. Waiting means having that perspective now. Second thing I want to say is there is a remarkable claim in our passage from 2 Peter that says that somehow we can hasten the day, make it come more quickly. What? Some scholars say, well, well, that probably in some way refers to if we repent collectively, repentively on a large scale, that repentance may sort of move up the timetable for that final day. Maybe. I don't know. I want to suggest something different. I want to suggest that, that maybe we, we hasten the day by our prayers. I'm going to briefly teach you something about the Lord's Prayer that you probably never thought of before. I hadn't until I came across this a few years ago. It's a different way of understanding and reading the Lord's Prayer. Famous, famous scholar, intellectual, I've talked about him a lot before, Albert Schweitzer. This is how he thinks the Lord's Prayer was meant to be understood. I put it on your handout. Basically, he says, this is an eschatological prayer. What that means is this is a prayer all about the end times, about the coming judgment, the coming end of the world, the coming of God's kingdom to earth, the new Jerusalem. That's what this prayer is basically fundamentally about. The first part of it, God's name being holy, his kingdom coming, his rule being on earth, sins being forgiven. That is hoping for the substance and shape of the kingdom to be here now. Think about that. Thy kingdom come is a petition. God, we want your kingdom here in its fullness now. That's something we pray every week, even if we don't think about it that way. He says, give us this day our daily bread is an interesting sort of thing. Scholars have long wrestled with this Greek word for daily, epiousios. This word appears nowhere else in Greek that we have. So it's not quite clear what that means. I won't go into any technical arguments today, but Schweitzer makes a pretty interesting case that it actually means coming day, future. So it would be something like, give us right now today the bread that we hope to enjoy one day in the future, the Messianic Feast. Finally, he says, deliver us from temptation. Well, 
you could easily read that as being about the tribulation that's spoken of in Revelation, and it would hold the whole prayer together in this way. We're praying, God, we want, we want, we want all those things we've been hoping for and dreaming of and worshiping you for throughout Advent, and our waiting means we're going to pray for him now. Pray for him now, pray for him now. God, give it to us quickly. If this is right, then the Lord's Prayer, as much as anything else, helps us to cultivate our desires. It helps us when we pray that to yearn for the kingdom, to want it, to daydream about it, to ask for it, to petition for it, to anticipate it. And like kids the night before Christmas, to have that sense of anticipation fill us and change us. So one question I have for you today is, are you eagerly waiting? Are you looking forward to the Lord coming back? I have to say one more thing, because I said at the outset, there are two striking things about the first Peter passage. The first striking thing is that somehow we can, we can hasten the day of the Lord. The second striking thing is beautiful, incredible, convicting, and blew my mind. I'm going to read you two of the verses from our passage. Verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some think of slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Verse 15 says, And regard the patience of the Lord, our Lord, as salvation. Here's what I realized when I read that. When we talk about waiting, oh, why is God delaying? Why is it taking thousands of years? When is he going to come? Is he coming? Why is it taking so long? When we think about that waiting on ourselves, here's what we need to realize. It's actually God doing the waiting. God's the one being patient. God's waiting until every person is created, till he brings into the world every person that he loves and has had in his mind's eye and is destined and desires to come to him. He desires that none should perish. And he's waiting. He's waiting, giving every chance for people to repent, to turn to him, to seek him. He's forgiving 490 times plus, 70 times 7. It's not an exact figure. It's exaggeration. He's waiting. He's waiting hundreds, thousands of times for his children to come back to him. That's why history drags on. He's waiting on us. That's such good news to me. I have to confess something. Kanai said to me recently, Dad, I don't know if I'm, 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 I'm excited about or okay or even feel okay with, with this second coming with Jesus coming back because I don't I don't know that I've been good enough yet. When we think about waiting, we think about 2 Peter 3, and we realize that the waiting is really God's. We have to say the gospel is all that matters. The gospel that God loves us and wants us to come to him and wants us to repent and gives us every chance and is 
fair and is just. We don't need to worry about him coming back. We just need to repent today. In whatever ways we need to have our minds blown and enlarged by him, our hearts blown open to love him more fully, more deeply, our lives made more pure, made more Jesus-like, in whatever big, small, indifferent ways, we need to come to him today, not tomorrow. That's what waiting is.